Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Football is back, and BetOnline remains your number one source for all your football betting needs this season. You'll find the latest odds, matchup info, player news, and game trends. And as your continued source for all sports wagering info, BetOnline features live betting, free contests, live scores, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports and events like MLB, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. BetOnline, where the game starts. Well, hello, everybody. This is Jeremy Evans, your host of the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. Thank you for being with us today. We have two very special guests with us. We have Freddie Trujillo, who is over at uh, UCLA, and then we have Jock Bular, who is uh, counsel at the Pac-12. So uh, Freddie focuses in on uh, compliance and dealing with NIL and uh, and helping to uh, manage the uh, Westwood uh, NIL program. And then Joth is uh, in charge of helping to negotiate media deals and uh, generally uh, management issues uh, with regard to the Pac-12. So we were able to bring these two together. Uh, We had a great discussion, and this is episode 42 of season four. So thank you so much. Sit back and enjoy. All right. Well, uh, welcome in. Uh, We have uh, two very, very special guests with us today. We have uh, Freddie Trujillo, who's the assistant director for compliance and student athlete services at UCLA, uh, and then we also have um, Joth Bular, who is uh, counsel legal and business affairs at the Pac-12 Networks. So uh, two very important people, uh, two very uh, good men that I've I've come across. Uh, actually, uh, Joth and I we uh, met at a, uh, a sports lawyers association networking mixer. I guess that was what last month. And so here we are, uh, you know, obviously doing uh, (laughs) here doing this. So this is great. So um, if we could maybe, Freddie, start with you a little bit about your background and then uh, how you got into uh, working at UCLA and and sort of what you're doing there now. Uh, And then, of course, obviously, with particular focus on NIL. And then uh Joth, if you could tell us a little bit about the same your background and sort of how you uh how you got into with the pac 12 and uh and we can kind of go from there awesome yeah no I'll, I'll try to keep it short uh basically started off uh in college undergrad i was a student athlete at san diego state university uh graduated from there in 2013 uh spent a little time in the public sector so i uh, worked at a, a, a non uh, doing their sports management for about three or four years 
I decided to go to law school at that point. So spent, uh, obviously, he was doing my studies in law school, still had the passion to be in sports. I obviously worked in the nonprofit and the sports field uh, throughout you know that time. And so I was able to connect with uh, one of my administrators back at San Diego State. Uh, I actually jumped on as an intern in their compliance department for a couple of years and really enjoyed it. So after I finished law school, you know, I felt like just keeping it going and was able to actually connect with the uh, Associate Athletic Director of Compliance at UCLA. Uh, so I went to San Diego State as an intern, and then I actually worked at UCSD uh, for about nine months until I got the opportunity to join the UCLA staff in about 2020. Uh, then I've been there ever since, uh, you know, obviously with the development of name image likeness, uh, there's been a lot of changes, especially over this past year. Uh, with the collectives, uh, with uh, universities building their own, uh, you know, um, databases and uh, opportunities for their student athletes. So really just developing that, uh, giving our students the opportunities that they as many opportunities as they can uh, and trying to continue the education. You know, there's a lot of changes, I'm sure, as uh, Joth is getting used to as well, familiar with with image likeness in college athletics. So uh, working hand in hand with our coaches and our student athletes to make sure that they understand everything that's involved in that atmosphere. Love it. Oh, thanks, Freddie. And then, Joe, how about you? Yeah, so I, I grew up in the Bay Area, went to Santa Clara University, and then went to Berkeley Law School. And actually, Freddie, I worked a little bit in the compliance department at Cal my last semester in law school. Um, I don't know whose dog that is in the background, but um, my 3L year, I knew I wanted to go into sports and entertainment law. I went to law school, started off doing computer engineering tech stuff, but I knew I wanted to pivot somehow. Um, so one of those angles was starting off in the compliance department at Cal and kind of working through initial NIL issues back in 2019. Um, and I actually applied for the Pac-12 internship as a lawyer, as a law student three different times and didn't get it. Uh, I ended up finally getting it 3L spring the semester before I was bound to graduate. Um, and I ended up getting a return offer at the end of that internship. And now I've been here for a little little over three years. Um, and I work on everything related to sponsorship and TV deals. So if you're ever at a Pac-12 football game, UCLA, USC, Cal, and you see signage up at the stadium or you see uh, one of our games on TV, that's that's kind of the deals I work on right now. I love that. Yeah. Now with... Um... Now, obviously, uh, Joth, you've had some experience to uh, working in uh, entertainment. You also worked at SAG-AFTRA and had some experience there, too. Um, maybe compare a little bit your experiences sort of working for the Pac-12 versus working in, in uh, entertainment. Yeah, I always tell people if you want to work in kind of sports law, if that's your ambition, I think that the industry is a lot broader than we tend to think. So some of the same stuff I'm doing at the Pac-12, there's a lot of overlap to what I did at SAG-AFTRA. I think the biggest skill set to learn is negotiating and drafting contracts. And that's applicable in the entertainment industry, sports industry, tech industry equally. Um, I think the differences, is, differences are SAG-AFTRA was a union on behalf of actors. So like the Tom Cruises of the world, Will Smith, whoever the big time actors, they'll have pretty high priced private attorneys. And then the lower level folks who might just be a stunt actor, they might be doing two or three scenes in a movie, they can't afford to pay the high priced lawyers. So they go to the Screen Actors Guild, which is essentially kind of a public defender's union for actors. Um, so it's interesting to be on that side because on the opposite side of the table was the 
producers, the studios, all those things. And then it, it's very similar at the Pac-12 where we are an umbrella entity and on the opposite side are the players, the sponsors, everything else. I think my experience would be a lot different if I worked for a team or a league instead. Um, and I think one of the downsides I'll say about college athletics, and I wonder if you agree, Freddie, is we're bound to the NCAA guidelines and rules, right? So there's not a lot of creativity or, you know, not really able to be very ambitious in the work that you do. Whereas let's say if I was an agent for a player or I worked on a different angle of these deals, I could go out and be creative and that's not as possible here. Yeah, Freddie, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I, I would seem to agree. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously you are bound by the NCAA and, you know, the bylaws and the handbook that we have. Uh, but I do find that there are ways that you have to be creative, you know, in order to push those boundaries. Uh, working at UCLA, you know, and having that experience at a G5, like San Diego State, I've really seen a difference in uh, the mentality uh, that my compliance department now has uh, and just our approach to different questions that are asked. Um, you know, whereas we might have not had that much experience or that high level of questioning coming from our coaches uh, and opportunities that they're trying to squeeze under the not under the radar but really between the lines um i am now finding that we are pushing those lines you know and finding ways to be creative so yes we are bound by the rules but we do find ways to be creative when we have to right no good point um and then of course freddie you've got similar to to joth you've got experience working for um you know you've obviously worked uh, in compliance at two different universities um now you're obviously in compliance but it's with a focus on nil and some of the the student relationships there uh which of course in an nil world is completely different than it was before uh but obviously you're and then you've worked for a law firm as well maybe talk a little bit about your experience uh and how those experiences have helped you um sort of in this in this current position uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Jackie, where I speak to this as well, you know, there is really a crossover when it comes to working in a law firm. And then when it comes to working in compliance, you know, you're having to do all the research, um, you're having to do all the, um, you know, background, uh, pull up discovery, you know, find different examples of uh, cases and uh, examples that you've had to work through in the past. Um, and that's similar to the NCAA. We have a big database called LSDBI uh, that we actually look up past infractions, past educational uh, columns, interpretations of different bylaws um, that date all the way back to the 1970s, 80s. Now, granted, a lot of these are archived, you know, we're not able to use certain interps because they're uh, out of date. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you can find an interp dating back to 1980 uh, that hasn't been archived, uh, that is applicable to a situation that you're going in, into today, you know, uh, some might not have been able to find that. And so you can actually, you know, squeeze that in give the coach a yes and, and move forward with that. So I think it really has helped, you know, having that legal background, having that, um, you know, uh, that research uh, capability in order to, you know, make it an asset in everything that we do now, um, you know, interpretations, analysis, you know, different things like that. So um, it has helped, definitely comes into play a lot. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, being going into compliance requires a legal degree or a legal background at all. You know, we have tons of individuals in, you know, in my office right now that don't have a legal background at all. 
um, but they are deep thinkers. Um, they're analytical and they're able to, you know, work through different situations um, to actually get to a common ground with a lot of coaches that we don't often find. Right. Now, and to your point, I mean, frankly, having a diverse uh, team in terms of folks that are not just lawyers, but, um, you know, sports management degrees or even nowadays, you know, having uh, they have masters of legal studies programs. You know, UCLA has got a pretty big program in that, too. So um, and of course, the business side of this, right, it's like you need more than somebody who just interpret a contract. You need somebody who can actually broker a deal or understand the the nature of name, image and likeness. Um, yeah, so absolutely. I mean, we get a lot of questions these days from coaches, from players. I'm just trying to understand name, image and likeness. Right. Jeff, you could speak to this is. The NCAA, they put out guidelines, but they don't really change much, right? It's like, okay, here's what we want you to do. Um, and there's one or two things different. I think the biggest, uh, you know, uh, the newly introduced guidelines that they just put out in the last couple of months are now addressing collectives, right? We hear a lot about collectives. We hear a lot about big deals being made uh, for uh, students coming out of high school. You know, that I'm giving an example here that I've Pretty sure a lot of you may have heard about the $8 million deal for a recruit going to Tennessee, right? That you made with a collective. Um, and a lot of coaches look at this and they come to us like, how could this be? You know, they get asked the compliance department, well, how can I get a kid to do this? How can I recruit, um, you know, using the same example? And, uh, you know, this is me speaking not on behalf of UCLA, you know, just in my personal sense, but, you know, coaches, they can they can be creative in a lot of things that they say and a lot of things that they, you know, try to use to recruit their players. Um, but we try to do our best to make sure that they are kind of abiding by those lines. You know, um, it's tough. It's tough sometimes, especially when, you know, you, we compare ourselves to an Alabama, you know, you compare ourselves to a Michigan uh, schools that aren't in as big of a market, I would say, as UCLA and in, in the sense of a media market. Right where you know we have lots of opportunities for students to get involved in different startup companies, um, you know, uh, big mainstream companies, uh, and we really want to push that um, to our student athletes. You know that you are in this area where you know it's it is highly saturated, but at the same time there are those opportunities for you. Um, they're not just going to be taken up by your your quarterback, you know, your running back who's going to take the deal with the local car dealership, and then there's not going to be nothing else for you. So um, we try to really emphasize that to our coaches to get them to understand that we are still at a great advantage being in LA. Um, but sometimes it's tough, you know, when they're looking at those big deals that are coming across, you know, in the smaller, you know, smaller, smaller cities. All right. No, good point, Freddie, because I think at the end of the day, like UCLA is still a public school You know, you see, you still have to, you know, you still have those issues and regulations. And to your point, um, you know, NCAA issued these, you know, sort of, policies, but they're not uh, maybe as robust as I think maybe schools would have liked. But then again, I think to your point, it's opened up opportunities to get creative, right? And this is where you've had schools do collectives where you've had, uh, there was the whole debate between uh, Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban in social media about which, which coach was cheating and which coach was not. Um, so there was a lot of that going on. Um, so I guess maybe, uh, I'll start with you, Freddie, on this one, and then Joth, I'll come to you sort of, how does UCLA sort of view the, the sort of future of NIL? I mean, 
I know you guys are working on the whole Westwood project, but maybe talk a little bit about, I guess, sort of two part, what you're currently working on and sort of how UCLA kind of views NIL and where they kind of see this going. Uh, well, I mean, we've already launched our Westwood Exchange program, um, which is now an opportunity for students to uh, open up a profile and to actually connect one-on-one uh, -on -one with these companies. Uh, it's ran through Open Doors, uh, which has a lot of schools that are under their umbrella. Um, and we really try to utilize that and push our students towards that. Obviously, the rules that are set right now really do limit a lot of our uh, ability to actually influence those deals. Um, but if we do push our students to those platforms, tell them that they can connect with those, you know, companies, then um, really it's it's kind of opens up the door for them. You know, uh, as long as they're disclosing everything that they're doing on that website, um, then we really, I mean, we look at it because obviously we have, like you said, the, it's being a public school. We have lots of uh, rules that we have to follow as far as the the make, the marks and the logo and all that, right? So if a student athlete is coming asking for uh, the ability to use, you know, the field um, wants to do it for a little commercial that they're doing or whatever, um, they would have to go through all of the proper channels to get that approval, you know? And a lot of times they come and they're asking to get these deals done in a week or two, when we know it takes longer than that to get campus approval to use those uh, Marshall logos. Um, and not only that, but it does come with a, a fee, right? That a lot of times outweighs the amount that these students are actually going to be making off of these deals. So student might get, you know, an opportunity to, to do a deal um, worth maybe a couple hundred dollars, not realizing that with that comes the fee of a couple thousand dollars to actually use the marks. So um, I really have to be mindful of, of, of those things. You know, a lot of times, obviously, our students don't end up using the marks, but um, if they want to use any of the facilities or anything like that, uh, it does require an additional level of approval before we can just say yes to it. So um, those aspects are really what we try to um, have oversight of. Um, but when it comes to, you know, student doing thing on their own time, obviously there's rules when it comes to uh, student athletes being involved in name image likeness opportunities during any practice or competition. Um, but now it's interesting because uh, we were actually, I was having a discussion with my team the other day um, over uh, the possibility of a student athlete um, promoting a name image likeness deal that they had in a post-game conference, right? So that was somewhat addressed in these recent guidelines. Um, and really what it came down to is if the question is asked by a reporter, um, if they're involved in any name image likeness opportunities, then the student should feel comfortable answering yes to that question. Um, they're not doing their, you know, they're not going above the call of duty when it comes to promoting it themselves. It's as if anybody else was asked, you know, what are you doing? Are you doing an, an, an internship? Are you volunteering? Um, it goes along those same lines. So um sorry you kind of devolved that question but no, no. There's no, that's perfect, Freddie. this area so. no 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 that's perfect freddie it's it really gives us an insight as to uh some of the questions that come across not only the student athletes mind but also from the university um and then from the conference as well because uh if you look if you go back and you look at the fair pay to play act which was the the legislation that really uh, launched NIL, if you will, because it was the first state to, to pass it, and then other states followed, and then eventually California went back to the legislature, or the legislature went back to the to the legislation, if you will, and they actually ended up moving up the date, you know, the start date of it to, to go with the other schools. 
Um, but one of the pieces um, in that legislation talked about basically it's an open market for these student athletes as long as it doesn't compete with the underlying university. And if so, of course, those questions of can you talk about um, you know uh, a brand during a press conference? You know, for example, you know, can an athlete walk in, you know, drinking a Pepsi? when it's when you know maybe the network sponsored by coke right or you know this whole idea of well clearly they're not going to be able to wear um let's say adidas gear when they're sponsored by jordan or Jumpman or nike or what have you so all those issues are, are really important and then so i appreciate you sharing that freddie so joth on the um the pac-12 side i thought that you guys did something really cool, which was to allow for licensing uh, for uh, for the athletes. Now, look, at the end of the day, and at least in my mind, and tell me if I'm wrong, I think a, a smart student athlete with or, or at least a smart student athlete and a smart student rep or, uh, you know, agent or whatever you want to call it, uh, might negotiate that the the brand would cover any licensing fees if they promoted something or tried to do that right versus it coming out of the payment to the athlete but talk a little bit about the pac-12's licensing program and um how that sort of came about and and sort of how you might how you might view that yeah i think it's important to kind of step back and think about the conference's role in all this the you know conference is not allowed to explicitly facilitate nil deals on behalf of student athletes as Freddie well knows. So at the Pac-12, our lawyers, our sales team can't go and tell UCLA athlete, hey, we've got this partner who's knocking on our door. We think they'd be a great fit for you. So I think, you know, this licensing deal came about because the, the conference and the commissioner especially wanted to kind of make it a point to help student athletes. Um, obviously, the industry has shifted quite a bit since last summer. And so Veritone was an existing licensing partner of the Pac-12 conference. So the conference owns the right to the broadcast footage of the underlying games. UCLA plays USC in football. Um, we own the copyright to that game and that footage. We might license it out to an ESPN or a Fox to carry that on a given Saturday. And then the copyright reverts back to, back to us. Um, and so what Veritone has, has always done, for example, when the NFL draft happens, the NBA draft happens, you see the highlights of an athlete. So an Oregon basketball player gets drafted you see a 30-second mashup of his highlights. That's because NBA TV or ESPN is licensing those highlights from the Pac-12 through Veritone, who's our exclusive licensing agent. So, Jeremy, I think you broke it down exactly right. If a student athlete wants to do a deal with McDonald's, I'm loving it, 30-second commercial. Um, before this type of licensing arrangement, that student athlete could not use any of their highlights. And even though they're depicted in them, even though they're performing in those highlights, um, they'd have to go through and get a license on their own. I think this just makes it easier. And to your point, likely McDonald's would pay that licensing fee um, and the student athlete would be able to utilize that. And I think, you know, Freddie can speak to kind of the use of logos and marks and still images. So that's kind of how we thought about video footage, that if we've, the conference owns the video highlights, here's a way for you to use that. You still have to go through your compliance department, let them know about this brand that you're doing a deal with. And now if that student athlete wants to post a picture with a Beats by Dre logo or McDonald's logo, are they allowed to put their UCLA insignia and their colors and jersey? And I think that's up to UCLA and the compliance department. So I think it, it does get tricky. 
at the conference level, we own the video footage. So that's kind of where we've stepped in with this licensing program. Um, but there's lots of other layers and kind of approvals from the school end as well. Yeah, no, that's really fantastic. And and to, to your point, practically speaking, if an athlete came along and said, you know, they're talking to a brand and then they're working with Freddie through, you know, um, through the Westwood, you know, program and they're trying to broker a deal and they're trying to disclose what the deal is, it would be kind of a funky looking commercial or social media post if they had, you know, that particular athlete in like, let's say an all white uniform or an all black uniform, but no logos on it or anything. It would just, it wouldn't look right. It would look like they were purposely avoiding the marks, right? Which uh, is maybe not the best situation. Funky, so, but at the same time, I mean, if they're a highly recognizable student athlete, then I'm not sure that there should there would be any problem with it. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm tell me if I'm wrong here, but there's a a national commercial for Dr. Pepper that Bryce uh, Bryce Young is in, right? And he's wearing the the Dr. Pepper maroon, but at the same time, you know, you could easily you know mischaracterize that for maybe the Alabama, uh, you know, crimson. right, right, right. Now, good point, good point, and I think that's. That's the the position where if you have a star quarterback or wide receiver or um, you know starting center and their and their face is recognizable, people know who they are, which I think maybe comes back to the whole social media presence, right? Because at the end of the day, and and tell me you guys if I'm wrong on this, but if you're going to be getting a good deal, you know, let's say a big deal from a brand, you know, Joth mentioned McDonald's. If McDonald's comes calling, it's usually because that person is not only good at what they do uh, on the field, but they're also, uh, you know, probably a decent person off the field and have a good reputation. And they probably have a large social media following would be my guess. But you guys tell me, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it yet where you have a student athlete with a small social media following having a good sort of brand or endorsement deal coming their way. I think the silence speaks volumes. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's pretty much true. And I would say at times, local athletes have value that on a national level, the audience wouldn't care about. Like an Alabama left guard, who maybe you and I don't know about, but he's a campus legend and they they put his face on the car wash dealership or whatever. Those are the lower level NIL deals. But to your point, I think the bigger brands are just thinking about what's going to be the number of ad impressions we can generate on Twitter or TikTok or whatever it is with this person. And typically that's just number of followers. And yeah. Right. Absolutely. 100%. Right. But, but to both your guys' points though, and, and that's something, um, it actually a really, a really good point is that you're right. The starting left guard for, for Alabama or any team is probably not going to be well recognized, but if, like you said, if they're a local hero, people know them, um, that could be a, a, a pretty decent deal for that person. If let's say a car dealership's willing to pay them, you know, 10 or $20,000 for something, you know, what was, there was that one really interesting NIL deal that I saw. I think it was middle Tennessee state university or something. And the starting quarterback who we might not normally recognize um, signed a deal with a local district attorney candidate to endorse his campaign. <laughs> so, um, 
And now I don't know if the NIL rules, if NCAA kind of came down on that or not. Um, but then again, we also there was also this recent um, sort of push to get out the vote and it was using student athletes to do it as well. And I'd be, I don't know if they got paid for that or not, but uh, it's sort of interesting to see some of these crossover things, right? Where it's not just your traditional, you know, Nike pays so-and-so to promote something on social media. It's, it's getting deeper than that. Uh, and I think going beyond, but yeah. so what are your guys' thoughts on, you know, obviously the, the, the uh, elephant in the room is that, you know, there's this, it's uh, UCLA and USC leaving the pack, the pac 12. Um, and Joth, I don't know how much you can talk about it or even Freddie, you can talk about it, but maybe we can kind of talk a little bit about um, some of the opportunities or, or challenges that presents. And if you can't talk about it, it's okay. I can change the subject, but let me know. I was actually surprised that uh, Joth agreed to be on here, you know, when he found out that <laughs> was going to be represented, you know, we've kind of lost our ties with those guys. We've got our backs, their backs turned on us now. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're already in the scouting phase of, you know, our transition. Uh, I'm sure, you know, you can find a lots of public comment by uh, our AD, Martin Jarman, speaking on what are the work that we're doing to just prepare ourselves for that transition. We still very much know and recognize that we are part of the Pac-12, and that's something that we want to continue to emphasize and communicate to, to everybody that we come in, uh, you know, communication with. Um, but at the same time, we are mindful that we are going to be transitioning in a couple of years. So knowing what that looks like from a department standpoint, from a student athlete standpoint, from a resources and support standpoint is really, you know, what we're trying to do. So we're, we're gathering a lot of information right now, really scouting. It's a scouting report right now. So it's exciting. It's an exciting time. No, for sure. Um, and let's, I want to break that down with, the, with, with, uh, Freddie, with you a little bit on some of those opportunities, but Joth, you have any comments or anything you want to add to that? I mean, obviously I don't want to, um, put you in a difficult position, but yeah. you know, clearly the PAC 12 was one of the power five and it's just like any other, um, conference in the country in that you've had this conference realignment. Every conference has done it. Um, uh, and of course, we had California governor come out and make comments about trying to force UCLA to stay. But I think one of the funny things I got out of that argument, and again, I'll, I'll stop talking, love to hear your thoughts, but was that the governor didn't complain when Colorado and Utah joined the conference and they have nothing to do with with uh, California or or and, and frankly, there's only two yeast, uh, two UC schools in the Pac-12, right? It's Berkeley and, and UCLA. Um, so I think maybe he was making more of the push to get maybe to have uh, Cal go along to the Big Ten too. But um, but anyway, I would love to hear your thoughts uh, if you can, even just from a business perspective. Yeah, I think from a non-business perspective, I know Commissioner has said from the beginning what Freddie just said, that UCLA, USC are members of the Pac-12 and then student athletes need to be respected and catered to the same way as if nothing has changed as I think that's our goal at the at the Pac-12 from a business perspective I think some of the things are obvious that you know Jeremy you and I might have even discussed at that happy hour is the it's public knowledge that we opened up our negotiation window 
from a media rights perspective. And I think you can kind of add up why, why that would be done in the moment. The Big 12 just signed an extension with ESPN and Fox, which I think was a six-year deal. And they publicly stated the intention of doing that now, rather than in two and a half years when that window opens, is to preserve their existing membership, right? Um, so that the ACC, the Big Ten, SEC doesn't come poaching their schools. So they brought them an offer and you know financially secured them and locked them in. And I think the logic is the same at the Pac-12, that we've got 10 very good schools um, who we believe have strong media value that we're going to go forward with. Um, and I think there's so many dominoes to fall still. And I think the order of operations that I always think about is you've got to find the right media partner. You've got to find the right combination of schools. And then you've got to find different ways to generate revenue as well. Um, obviously, using losing UCLA, USC as strong LA markets, um, that leaves a hole in the revenue. revenue. How, how can we make that up? That'll be cool for the next two years. Right. Yeah, now, word, word on the streets is that y'all are going to be inviting uh, my alma mater down the street, uh, San Diego State, up to play in Pac-12. Is that a get any light to that? Well, I, so it's, it's funny because I heard, uh, was it Monday morning, Dan Patrick yeah. said on an interview, San Diego State's going to the, going to the Pac-12. It's going to be announced this week. And actually on Mondays, we have our media rights call, and that was debunked in the first minute. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's possible. And I think that would be a pretty obvious candidate down the road. Um, but I have no knowledge that, that that deal is done or that's coming up soon, but Freddie, I'll, I'll text you on the side when it is dead. Yeah. Uh, thanks for debunking that man. Fake news all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, it is interesting too, because I think that there is, uh, some opportunities uh, when it comes to, um, you know, what this might look like, right? I think from UCLA's perspective, um, it's great from a financial point of view, right? Because you go from, let's say on the high end, $40 million a year in a television deal, which is probably more between 25 and, and 40, right? I think in terms of numbers, but tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, in terms of the Pac-12, and then you go over to the Big Ten, and then you're looking at seventy million dollars a year, and then uh, and then of course, um, if the Big Ten is going to add additional schools, like there's been talk about maybe Washington or Notre Dame or some of these other schools, I don't know whether that's actually going to happen, but currently I think the Big um, the Big Ten is it going to be sixteen teams with uh, with UCLA and USC? I think it's sixteen which I think matches the SEC, um, but I'm not sure. I think the SEC may have, is it 18 now with Texas and Oklahoma joining them or is it? Yeah. So, uh, but again, I mean, that's, that's a ton of money, you know, per year. And then of course, if they add more schools that jumps up to 90 million. Um, and then of course the, the other piece to this is that UCLA will get to play in prime time slots. So uh, more likely to be seen on college game day or what have you. And then of course, you're going to be playing Michigan state, Michigan and Ohio state. But that being said, the big 10 has, um, I don't even know how to, how you describe it, but they have the Washington States just as, just as, you know, they have the same similar schools, right. In the sense that not every school in the big 10 is, is Ohio state or Michigan. 
you're going to have your Northwesterns, you're going to have your Indianas and your Purdue's, you know, which are not traditionally uh, football powerhouses. And then, of course, the other piece to this is what happens in the competition space, because um, and maybe it's because the Pac-12 doesn't get a lot of respect. Uh, you know, on the East Coast, because people are already sleeping by the time that the games are are being played, you know, because it's you know, 1030, 1130 at night by the time the games are on. But I, I mean, I don't know. To me, I think it opens up a lot of opportunities. It's just I think a part of me was a little bit sad, too, to see the, you know, the Pac-12, um, you know, them leave the Pac-12. But I think from a business perspective, it probably makes, um, you know, a ton of sense. And then, you know, Freddie, one of the first words that you used was recruiting. You're already looking at this as a, an opportunity. And to your point, if you've got a starting, let's say left guard in, in Indiana or in Ohio or anywhere else, or even in Pennsylvania, cause you got Penn state as well. Um, and, and the parents are thinking, well, normally if UCLA never travels to the East coast, we're not going to be able to see our son play or daughter play. And of course, now that completely changes because it opens up that opportunity. I think the only question that remains is, tr- you know, travel issues and that sort of thing. But um, I was going to say that's something that our coaches are very much looking forward to. Obviously, expanding that reach. Um, you know, Mick does a really good job already recruiting the East Coast. He is a you know an East Coast kind of Midwest guy uh, for basketball. Uh, but I think a lot of our teams are now excited at, you know, spreading that arm out to see, you know, really just who we can pull um, from those from those different states. Right. So I'm going to throw a couple of questions out there to you guys. And I agree. I mean, because that that I think for football is less of a concern. Right. Because you got 12 games in the season, um, not including a bowl game. Right. Or bowl games if you make the college football playoff. But, um, you know, really only thinking about six games or you have to travel. And, um, you know, so obviously the furthest east you'd have to travel is Penn State uh, or maybe Rutgers. But um, but again, there's a there is a wide gap between Nebraska and Los Angeles, you know, in terms of the furthest west school in, in the Pac-12. But I'm going to throw some questions out to you guys. Would love to get your thoughts on this. So there's been some talk about the unionization of college athletes. Um, this has been tried before. What are your guys' sort of thoughts about this? If you can uh, just sort of in general talk about um, what do you think it's practical? What do you think it's actually going to happen? I would just love to hear your thoughts. And that's for both of you guys. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. uh, Could you repeat that, Jeremy? Yeah, no, just talking about like the unionization of, of, of college athletes. There's been some talk about it. You've had some athletes, you know, potentially push for it. Um, do you think this is something that is likely? Is it good for the NCAA? Um, what's the NCAA's role in this? I would just love to hear your general thoughts on the potential of unionization of college athletes. Yeah, and I'll give you my, again, like what Freddie said, my non-Pac-12 perspective, my layman's perspective, not speaking on behalf of the company, et cetera. Um, I've actually always thought that unionizing athletes and treating yourself like an employee, like having that status would actually be harmful. And in most cases, you know, as employees, you have at-will employment, you're allowed to be fired, you're allowed to be removed. Um, I think it would be better to have the protection of being a student athlete, 
which means you have your tuition, you have all that expenses. But the addition, you have the ability to make NIL money as much as you can make. Um, you can go out and get jobs. You can go out and do whatever else you need to do. Having an open financial system, but still being a student athlete and having the protections that come with that, that would be my preference. I think the problem with, again, unionizing and doing those things, there's such a discrepancy between um, the commercial financial value of student athletes. So, if, of course, if you have the five-star Bryce Young quarterback at Alabama versus the backup polo player, um, is it actually beneficial for student athletes to all be treated the same? Um, and maybe that's a question for Freddie and the class, but I've always viewed it as you know, student athletes should have the you know, opportunity to get educated. Um, and then if you do have a commercial value to your brand or something additive in that way, go ahead and make as much money as you can. Um, but I don't, I don't see a lot of upsides to unionizing really for the student athletes. Oh, good points. Good punt points on that. Um, Freddie, any thoughts you want to share? Yeah, no, I definitely echo that, you know, speaking on behalf of myself, I, I really side on, um, you know, the, the, the student athlete, you know, and, and wanting them to keep that actual title. Um, I know that there are several attempts to actually, you know, get student athletes labeled as employees, you know, start a union. Um, but I, I mean, being a student athlete, I know the benefits that I took from it. Um, and I don't think that having, you know, that employee status or having to worry about, you know, filing taxes or losing the benefits that I had as a student athlete, you know, the tuition, the protection of insurance, all of that, without having to worry about paying towards it, just having it covered um, was huge, right? Um, and with the name, image, likeness, now we are helping close the gap in the education when it comes to those taxes, what they're having to file, how they're having to file them, um, at what time, you know, what to put aside for those, um, you know, those, uh, you know, real life responsibilities, if you will, um, the, it does close the gap between the student athlete and the employee title. Um, and so I think, I think the debate will continue to go. Um, I think that we'll continue to see cases brought by former student athletes, current student athletes, trying to get the union um, unionized, trying to get this, the, the employee title, but it's a really hard, it's, it's an uphill battle, you know, just speaking on, you know, from my own personal opinion, it's a really hard uphill battle that they're having to, to fight. Um, I, you know, I'm sure Jonathan and I both read many cases and Jeremy, I'm sure you're familiar with many cases that we read in our, in our college sport, uh, sports law classes about student athletes trying to get the employee title, trying to get unionized and they're just getting shot down time and time again. So um, until there's precedent actually set in a successful, you know, in a successful side for students, then it's we're just going to keep seeing it happen. Tough. Gotcha. Um, so no, and and I agree. I I think that um, if you add, it, it's sort of interesting because if you add the employee title, that presents a, a a ton of additional issues, particularly when it comes to contract law, because then if if you're sticking to the at will employment, okay, well then. Uh, maybe that creates an environment of what they already have, which is the transfer portal. So if you wanted to go go to school somewhere else, uh, which was opened up around the same time, I think a little bit earlier than NIL, which has kind of created this environment where you can transfer to schools and then you have NIL. And I think that's um, probably created some uh, some confusion or as some people have said, like the Wild West, right? Um, 
But at the same time, to your point, now you're having this ability to teach financial management and financial literacy, and you've been able to do it at an earlier stage. And, and frankly, these uh, you know, student athletes are getting exposure to maybe business decisions that they might not be getting had they been in a sort of uh, a more traditional uh, you know, NCAA environment. So I guess maybe I'll close with a couple of questions and then um, um, we'll have some additional questions. But uh, I guess just for me, I'm kind of looking at this and I'm like, OK, well. I guess one question is we sort of had this situation where you had, um, you know, obviously NIL opportunities for, you know, across the spectrum, men and women uh, across every sport. And of course, as it turns out, the statistics show that actually um, female basketball players are benefiting, um, uh, you know, very significantly from, from NIL. But one of the sports that I think has potential to benefit uh, even more is baseball. You know, college baseball for the longest time, I mean, you have the College World Series, but it's never been on the same level as uh, let's say basketball or football. And when, when Major League Baseball decided to contract from, I think 20, sorry, from 40 rounds of the draft to 20, and then they also contracted um, uh, the minor league baseball teams. And they went from, I think it was 120 to I think 60 teams in terms of official like affiliates. And I sort of thought, well, college, you know, college baseball has to benefit from this because where do all those athletes now go if they're not getting drafted? Are they going to go to college? And especially if um, if they have the opportunity to make NIL money, what are your guys' thoughts on that uh, particular issue? And have you seen any movement in that regard? For either one of you guys. Freddie, I'll let you start that one. <laughs> Uh, I was waiting to see if we had some media. Um, I mean, I think honestly, the, it being National Signing Day uh, today, we have seen a lot of students that have the, had the opportunity to, um, you know, sign possibly uh, with a team decide to come back to college. Um, I think it goes back on our conversation earlier and what we had mentioned about social media presence, right? Um, this change to uh, now closing the scope on our minor leagues, um, I think will now provide the opportunity for a lot of those high performing athletes to go to college. But then it goes back on raising the bar in their social media presence. So if we know a student or a, you know, a player might've gone you know, first round, second round, or maybe even one of the latter rounds um, decides to go back to college, has a social media presence of the big time player, then he can bring that to his team. Um, I, I really, you know, I, it's interesting. I think your take that, uh, Jeremy, that, uh, you know, baseball does have an opportunity, a big opportunity, because I think all sports really do have the opportunity. It's just about who's on the roster, right? Um, if you got, you know, uh, I'm just going to use our, our gymnastics squad, for example, you know, we have Jordan Childs, um, Olympian, you know, world champion, uh, you know, she has garnered a lot of attention, not only for the team, but for herself and for the university. So if you have just one person on the roster with that level of, uh, you know, social media presence um, image, then they could bring a lot more attention to the other players on the team. So we'll see. I mean, it comes down to the recruiting, right? <laughs> if you get a guy there that has that, you know, 40,000, 50,000 followers and 
you might be able to brush some of those off on some of those other guys. Yeah, right. think about uh, Bronny. Bronny James is getting recruited right now by a bunch of Pac-12 schools, by some Big Ten schools too. The impact, him being on campus for some of those other basketball players, even if he's not the best player on the team, which it didn't, um, some of the schools he's going to, he might not be. Uh, I'm sure he'll get some big-time deals from Nike. He already has one with Beats. Um, I think he has the power to kind of elevate the entire roster and sp- you know, sprinkle money across. That's a great example. I mean, let's go to Caden Kay, uh, Williams, right? Look what he's done. He spread his Beats deal for the whole entire team, spread a Nike deal for the whole entire team. So um, the trickle down, is, is it's real. Yeah. So I mean, it's, I think it's fascinating. I mean, I'm kind of curious where it's gonna where it's eventually gonna end up, but um, I think NIL has definitely changed the landscape. Um, you know, Joth, I think, you know, Pac-12's got a terrific opportunity to grow, uh, to um, to bring in some really cool schools. I I think in my mind, uh, and frankly, because the negotiations are open as to um, what the next Pac-12 media deal is going to look like uh, in the next, you know, five, 10 years, right? I think there's some, some terrific opportunities there uh, that open up. And, and of course, I don't think it's going to be easy sailing for UCLA and USC in the sense that um, in one sense, uh, it's great because I think you're going to have this sort of different or maybe even added competition, right? Um, and of course, I had a buddy the other day, he was uh, with the Rose Bowl and he was in uh, Wisconsin and uh, they were at Lambeau Field and they were taking a video of uh, um, of the field. And it was like it was on a Saturday. So they were filming it and there was a bunch of snow coming down. Right. And I think the question was, can can UCLA and USC athletes in SoCal like stand this weather? Like, you know, this is going to be a problem. Right. And of course, my response, I started laughing. I said, well, okay, first of all, not all these kids are from SoCal. A lot of them are from the Midwest and from the East Coast. So clearly they can stand the weather. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, they can prep for, for bad weather. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, those are some of the questions that are that are kind of going on, right? <laughs> everything, everything. Yeah, I think, right, sleep, uh, you know, the nutrition, the, the weather, the elements, you know, I think uh, Chip was quoted the other day when it was raining on, on Monday and they had outdoor practice saying, you know, something like, well, I'm glad it's raining, you know, get our guys uh, used to it, right? You know, they get too comfortable down here. So we want to get them used to those different changing environments. You have to be, unless yeah. you're in the sport, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, so I'm going to, uh, so maybe any closing thoughts, uh, Joth or Freddie, you guys want to share, and then um, we'll open it up to some questions. Yeah, I think, you know, I mentioned I applied to the Pac-12 three different times before I even got the internship. If I had gotten the internship at any other time, I wouldn't have gotten the full-time job. So I think just having faith in the timing and just being persistent, that's like an obvious you know, insight that you hear from everybody, but it's true. Um and I would say, you know, there's certain the sports law, sports law, sports business industry is super hard to break into because there's so many people that want to do it. And it's going to be very dependent on the relationships that you build. And I think there's creative ways to do that beyond just posting on LinkedIn and doing other things. I would say, for example, what Jeremy's done has a podcast, has a LinkedIn presence. I think everybody in California who's in the sports law business knows Jeremy's name or knows or has come across one of his posts. 
And I think you can do that same thing while you're in school. You can write articles, you can do podcasts, anything that kind of builds your personal brand as someone who's interested in this space. And then also I would say, Jeremy, something that helped when I was in law school was volunteering for lots of random events. So if you just type in Long Beach or LA sports business event, there's one or two a month about something. And oftentimes they need volunteers, student volunteers who'll hand out flyers or help set up or help tear down. And if you do stuff like that, you'll be the only person in the building who's a student where everybody else is kind of in the industry. And you can go for free to these events that'll cost $800 to $1,000 for other people. I think little hacks like that, finding ways to just, you know, get in the door somehow um, and continuing to be persistent about it and maintaining your relationships. Yeah, no, good points. Good points. Freddie, any thoughts? Yeah, no, definitely want to just echo that. You know, um, opportunities are going to come when you least expect. Um, so just you got to make sure that you're opening the doors for yourself because they might not always be open. Reach out, um, find those different volunteers, um, you know, and make cold calls. People don't call each other anymore. You know, they just expect an email to be answered when really I get emails. You know, we all get emails every single day that just get put sent to the spam. So um, if you got somebody's contact number, reach out, give them a cold call. You never know what it might lead to. So definitely start early. That's a definitely start early. On the, the management side from like an athlete perspective, right? One of the things that kind of got me from the, from the Fair Pay to Play Act was there was a line in there that I never understood, but I would love to get your perspective and Josh's perspective too. But they had this line in there that said something like, um, that a student athlete could not be represented by an agent in the sense that they can help them broker these deals. They can, you know, make as much money as they want. There's no limitations other than reporting and then competition or, or what have you. Right. But that they're not allowed to use an, or an agent's not allowed to um, basically talk about future draft prospects in these discussions. But in my mind, First of all, how can you prevent that conversation from even happening or regulate that? And then secondly, and that's not that's more of a rhetorical question, right? But then the second piece is, and I, I guess the, the call comes to you in terms of, um, you know, like, how does a university handle that? But then also um, sort of how, how can the university maybe help the athletes uh, to either educate them or, or maybe if it's even trying to get the legislation changed? Because number one, how do you regulate that? But then two, the other issue is if I'm an agent and I'm trying to negotiate a deal on behalf of a player, I'm of course going to use that underlying deal to convince that player to sign with me, you know, for down the road to work with me. But I would love to get your guys' thoughts on that, though. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the language is pretty clear when it said, you know, how students can interact and, you know, make deals and agreements with agents. Uh, but like you said, you know, the oversight and the ability to actually manage those conversations is something that we really put a lot of trust into the student athlete, the individual. Um, we do have a very robust athletes or excuse me, agents program uh, in which we have agents that actually do ant anticipate representing student athletes in their professional you know, athletic abilities have to go through, you know, and register with the Secretary of State and so on and so forth. And we have a database. Um, and we also have a database of agents who are specifically looking to represent those student athletes in their name, image, likeness. 
opportunities, right? And that's the, the, the delineation there is they are allowed to have those personal service providers, but they can't have an agent that's going to represent them in the professional sport athletic um, um, industry. So managing that line, you know, is tough. And I'm sure this is something that compliance departments all over the nation are ripping their hair out, trying to, to find ways to get uh, a fly on the wall in those conversations to just make sure nothing else is happening. Um, but it really does come down to the education. Every year at the beginning of the year, we have very in-depth education with our programs um, to make sure that they understand the difference, to make sure that they understand that they can, they should feel free to and comfortable telling us and having the conversation, bringing it to our attention if there are those conversations that they're getting, um, you know, drawn into. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, we just want to make sure that they're as comfortable as possible in those situations. And now, obviously, without <coughs> Those perfect per, uh, personal service providers, name, image, likeness uh, representatives, um, it has kind of skewed the line a little bit more. So, trying to keep our eye on it, man. If to, to be a fly on the wall in those name, image, likeness agent conversations, <laughs> right? With Wasserman. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Joth, what do you think? Similar thoughts or? Yeah, nothing. Nothing really to add to what Freddie said. I think he he's closer to the issue. We don't deal a lot with agents at all at our level. Um, but I'll have to ask my Pac-12 compliance folks. So I think Freddie probably knows Chris Marino, Eric Price, who you probably met. I'll check in with them and get you a better answer. Yeah. See those guys every other Friday. <laughs> Joth, your role is so important when it comes to um, really the future of the sport, because um, when you're talking about conference realignment, when you're talking about the college football playoff, and you're talking about expanding that. And, and of course, that's a separate entity from the NCAA. And then the whole issue of whether uh, the Power Five would leave the NCAA. And if not all together, but just in certain sports, I mean, um, that's where the Pac-12 and these, these uh, conferences can really uh, benefit and become, um, in many ways, quasi sort of NCAA entities, right? Because you guys could eventually be hey, if you want to be a member of our conference, you have to follow these rules, you know? So it's it's interesting. Yeah, and I think, you know, Jeremy speaks to a larger point about college sports going national, of course, with the UCLA, USC news, but before that it was Texas and Oklahoma. And, you know, so much of this is going to be driven by media value, media interest. Um, and, you know, Pac I think the future of the Pac-12 is going to change so much in the next six months to eight months depending on who our media partner is. There's been a lot of rumors about, you know, streaming partners. Um, if you look at Apple, they did a deal with the MLS where they control essentially 100% of their media rights. And that's always kind of Apple's goal is to control the entire experience. You think about your MacBook Pro, your AirPods, your phone, they want to live in every aspect of your life. And I think once those tech companies really start to take over the sports rights world, um, I think it's it's going to be difficult to maintain viewership of long-form sports content with the younger generation. I look at my nieces and nephews who are 15, 16. They only watch YouTube videos or TikToks of 30 seconds or less. And so sports is kind of the last pillar of valuable live TV content. Everything else is streaming or DVR, nothing else that you really care about watching live. So I think that that's what's really interesting to your point about the future of the sport, future of the way we consume media. 
Um, I think it's going to shift a lot in the next two years. Yeah, no, really good point. I um, I was just reading some articles uh, the other day, and then I'll, I'll let you guys go. I know it's uh, we've already taken too much time of your time, but um, you know, it's like when I was looking at uh, the Major League Baseball playoffs and how they were using social media and short short form content to and talk about a sport that has been sort of um, I don't know whether fairly or not, because football lasts just as long as baseball does. It's just that I think the action in football tends to be um, uh, a little more aggressive, right? So when you're watching it, it's a little more exciting. Whereas let's say a baseball game, uh, a lot of the action is, is sort of either dormant or it's, you know, panning the outfield, looking at an outfielder or what have you. But it was saying how Fox and Major League Baseball we're able to use short form content to increase viewership, you know? So to your point, I mean, it's, you're really just meeting the consumer where they're at, right? Like you're trying to find ways to, to reach them. And of course, the more you can do that, the more your media deals are going to be valuable. So, um, but anyway, and the only reason the big 10 is worth more value wise than the PAC 12 is the fact that uh, the middle of the country loves college football. Um, you know, and not to say that the, 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 the West coast doesn't, but it's different, right? It's like, you have more options. I think in California, you know, you can go to the mountains, you can go to the beach, you can go to 10 different sporting things. You can go to, a uh, hundred different college events. Whereas if you live in Nebraska, you don't have a professional team and you're, you essentially have a university, right? So it's, 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 I think it's, um, it, it makes it more competitive. So I feel your pain, Joth. And I, I hope that, uh, I hope that, I mean, PAC 12 is, is going to be fine, but, um, and I think it's going to be an interesting, uh, competition when let's say UCLA, USC come back and play a PAC 12 team in two years from now and what that looks like. And, uh, I think it honestly adds for, uh, for additional intrigue, I, I think I, I don't know. I might be speaking out of turn, but yeah, I'm we, we might get we might get UCLA USC in the championship game in three weeks, which would be exciting too. So I think it's going to be a super cool two years, um, and I think UCLA USC will do great in the Big Ten because it's a national brand and all sorts of upsides to it. And I think the Pac Pac Ten, Pac Twelve, whatever we call it going forward, has some interesting strategic initiatives that we're going to work on. Um, but I think we're in a good spot. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I had the chance to meet George at, um, yeah, obviously the commissioner at uh, a Rose, Rose Bowl party and, uh, just a very nice gentleman, you know, and I, I think his, his background in Vegas and with yep. gaming and with entertainment, I mean, there's so many really cool things I think that the conference can do in that regard too. Agreed. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you guys. It's good, good to see both of you and uh, let's get together soon. Appreciate you, Jeremy. All right, guys. Thank you. All right, folks. Thanks again. That was Freddie Trujillo and Joth Bular with uh, UCLA and PAC 12 respectively. Uh, glad to have them on with us. Uh, this show has been brought to you by bet online. Uh, hope that you uh, come back with us next week as we'll have another special guest uh, in addition to the week after that. Um, as always appreciate you listening in and making us number one sports law podcast in the world. I'm Jeremy Evans. 
your host of the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. Thank you so much and have a great week. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube